0: Hello everybody, welcome back to another week here on The Passion Project, the podcast where it doesn't matter if anybody else cares as long as you do. Um, I I could waste time with some kind of intro-y thing here right now, but honestly I've got nothing worthwhile to say, so I'm just going to get straight into it. And introduce, this week I have Justin joining me. Hey Justin.
1: Hey Scott, how's it going?
0: Not bad, how you doing?
1: Doing pretty good, Um, having a good weekend, how's yours been?
0: Ah, pretty good. I am currently on a public holiday today, so it's the third day of my three day weekend, which is always very exciting. Ah,
1: that is always wonderful. Exactly. Always a
0: good I have fifty percent more weekend. It's great. Um, <laughs> so what are you here to talk to me about today?
1: Yeah, so uh, thinking about, you know, things that I'm passionate and things I could talk about, uh, there's a few, but I think what would be really good, something that really uh, drives back to me a lot is is teaching and programming and how those two things intersect uh, because that's something that I've kind of always enjoyed and looking back on it it's I kind of turned it into my career in some ways so it's been kind of exciting to see how those things have kind of melded over the years
0: very nice so I guess if you've turned it into your career what is your career
1: Yeah, so right now um, uh, I own and run a small software consultancy uh, called Lunar Collective out here in Austin, Texas, and uh, we specialize in building custom software. Um, But one thing that, uh, since I'm really passionate about it, we also do is we do um, curriculum development for uh, code schools and also do on-site training and mentoring. Um, So we'll also just, like, we'll build out, um, you know, this is the thing you want to teach your uh, employees or you want to teach your new hires. We can build out a system that will help them learn that as quickly as possible um, in a very effective way that's fulfilling for them. And also, we you know do do services like, hey, you're a company. You can't really afford to bring someone on to train someone. We can train them uh, on your behalf. Uh, and that kind of helps a lot of people out when they don't really have that in their, in their company or in their roster kind of thing.
0: Yeah, nice. So how long, you said you own it?
1: Yeah, so I founded it a little over, uh, almost two years ago, I think two years ago in a month or so. Um, So I've been doing this now then for full time for two years. But uh, if I could use it as a jumping off point, going backwards, before I started my own company, uh, I worked full time at one of these uh, like immersive code schools, these like uh, companies where you can like go for 12 weeks and learn and learn code and then try to get a job programming in the industry. Uh, And I worked there for about three years and that was really a good time for me to kind of in my mind, give back to the industry uh, because, you know, I uh, take one step further back. I uh, taught myself how to program. I never went to college or school or university for this. Um, So seeing other people who weren't able to get into the industry because they couldn't go to college or they weren't able to get into university for it, uh, it's really nice to be able to say, okay, I'm going to help these people out. And one way I can do that is by building this curriculum and by teaching them myself.
0: Yeah. So so how did you teach yourself? Like what ways did you go about teaching yourself how to code?
1: (laughs) What I used to always tell my students was it was a lot of long nights, (laughs) especially at like something like a Starbucks. Uh, What I really did was I would go into these things called bookstores that used to exist. I've heard of them. Yeah, yeah, they're very rare. And I would buy physical books on programming languages that I just thought might have been relevant. Uh, And I would read the whole thing. And then I would realize I don't know anything so then i would start reading it over again um and then it was just a it was just a long process it just took years of small project here slightly larger project here working with this person working with that person you know lots of long nights and weekends listening to podcasts and just kind of staying up all night programming trying to figure out okay well i don't know what i'm supposed to do here but this this kind of works and kind of like feeling my way around in the dark is the way I used to kind of explain it to people. You don't really know where you're going, but eventually you go like, okay, this is an edge here. I'm going to follow this wall and see where that goes.
0: So, so how long ago was this? Was like, how big was sort of the coding and, you know, programming industry at the time? Was this early days or had it? was it a fairly big industry at this point when you started getting into it?
1: Yeah. I mean, I'll definitely say I, uh, I'm not, uh, That senior in the industry as far as like the the length of technology. Uh, This was around 2008, 2009. It's about a decade ago. So it's a decent decent while ago, but not, you know, not the dawn of the internet or the dawn of PCs. Um, So there was plenty of resources around, but I was definitely in this before the modern realm of. Startup culture and the modern and appification of things, and and definitely the before there was an industry around getting into tech. Um, back when I was trying to get into the industry, it literally was you have a CS degree, you know, you got your computer science degree, or you don't, (laughs) and that was it. And that was that was really uh, cut and dry. So for me, it was more of, well, okay, I can't get hired anywhere, I don't think I ever applied for an actual job job um because i knew they would never hire me so i'm like well i'm just going to keep teaching myself and eventually that led me to doing basically freelancing contract work where i would find you know uh individuals you know small company founders who needed some app built and they wanted a good deal (laughs) (laughs) and i could do it um so i would work with them and and uh and make in charge way way too little um, yeah. to work on on these large applications and and then I did that for years uh, before yeah. I kind of realized uh, oh maybe I should actually try to find a job doing this.
0: <laughs> so yeah. So what what was it about coding? Why did you want to start learning it? What made you start pursuing that?
1: You know, looking back, I don't think I can. I don't know if I can even see what the spark of the moment that caused it was, um, but it definitely must have happened at some point. So I remember, um, I definitely learned some programming and coding in like middle school and high school as I went through uh, all those grades. Like I learned some video game programming, just little, tiny things, nothing actually professional or good. And I think I just always thought of it like that. Programming was just, oh, that was that hobby where I did HTML and MySpace themes. You know, I don't really. Mm-hmm. I don't really know how to do anything with that, and I was always told, like, you know, to be in computers, and be a programmer, you've got to be really good at math, and I was really bad at it, so I was like, okay, well, that's never going to work out for me, and I went to college for, like, business, (laughs) (laughs) Um, just generic business, I didn't know what to do with that.
0: Yeah, it's like, business, businesses are everywhere, I'm sure if I study business, I'll get a job. (laughs)
1: <laughs> exactly. And I, I never finished college. Uh, it just it did, it was financially, it wasn't working out. Uh, and I was waiting tables. And I remember uh, waiting tables and just kind of like as a hobby, I was like, oh, I've got this book on video game programming, but I could build like a calculator uh, that would help the manager like finish their like end of the day tasks uh, when like calculating everyone's payout. And I remember one time manager was like, why – do you work here? Yeah. <laughs> this is this is the kind of thing you want to do. I'm like, because, and I th- I thought he was being, you know, uh, uh, what's the word? I thought he was just kind of being flippant with me. Cause I'm like, well, no one's gonna hire me to do this. Um, but I think around that time, I was like, well, you know, but maybe someone would pay for it. So I should yeah. try to just do it. And that's why it was this long process. Of, like I waited tables, and then after my shift, I would just drive to a local Starbucks and then <laughs> grab a big coffee at 11 p.m. and just stay there all night working. Uh,
0: <laughs> the Starbucks staff are just staring at you, being like, he's back again. He's
1: doing yep, it. yep. And eventually he just got to the point where they're like, listen, it's like 11.30. I know we're a 24-hour Starbucks, but you can just have the coffee for free because I don't want to ring anything up at the register before it turns over.
0: <laughs> yeah, they're like, we're actually worried about you. <laughs> we're we're going to stage an intervention.
1: <laughs> it probably got to that point a few times. Start, uh, yeah, but it was, it was. Oh, go ahead.
0: Oh, I was just going to say, did you start getting to know the star the, the Starbucks staff by name at that point?
1: Oh, definitely. I was a well past that. Um, I have a long history of. You know, wherever whatever becomes my current coffee shop to go hang out in when I code in, even to this day, I find something very therapeutic. It's probably based uh, partly as nostalgia, but something's therapeutic about like going to a, star- a Starbucks or another coffee shop and just like, okay, I'm going to work from here for the day, and then that ends up being every two days for a couple yeah. weeks, and then everyone knows me I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'm that guy who does that until eventually I just I stop going to that coffee shop for whatever reason.
0: <laughs> yeah, it basically becomes your office.
1: It does, yeah. The office away from the office because you know sometimes you need a you know change of scenery, isn't it, you yeah. know, in the grand scheme of things.
0: So when you originally started, I assume if you were doing when you were doing freelance stuff, it would have just been working from home or Starbucks that sort of thing.
1: Yeah, it was almost exclusively like working from home or from working from uh, whatever coffee shop I could find to just get some work done, and I did that yeah for almost three years. Um, and that was an interesting time because I was younger. It was like my first time really out on my own doing this. And, uh, it was like the time to like, uh, what's learn how to work alone and learn how to like, not go completely, uh, not to like drive myself out of my own mind, just not being out with people. So yeah, I le- yeah. learned how to cope, but also learned that it was very important to be with people. Like you can't just not do that. Yeah. that's <laughs> I always... needed to Yeah, go yeah, get out there always... and actually see someone.
0: Yeah, that's always been my thing. I don't think I could ever work from home just because of just being on my own and relying on myself for my own motivation and not being around other people would absolutely drive me insane and I would get nothing done.
1: Yeah, it, it can definitely happen that way. And uh, it's one of those things where I learned for me personally, and this is probably true for a lot of people, I had to have a very rigid schedule, which always seems so bizarre from the outside so you know like uh you know my partner or something coming home and just being home for the day while i'm working and she'd be like what are you doing i'm like well it's 8 5 so i have to leave the house <laughs> <laughs> i have to go to this one you know uh coffee shop get a coffee stay for an hour come back and then it's like you know oh, time to check the mail time to eat lunch and everything's on this rigid schedule not because i personally love schedules but because Keeping to that rhythm made, made made me be sure to get work done in between. Yeah. Uh, if I didn't, it would just kind of all blend into this horrible mess of just not getting things finished.
0: Yeah, exactly. You have to you have to act like you're going to a job, like you would any other job. Otherwise, you know, you, you end up sitting around at fucking midnight in your pajama pants, just going like, <laughs> I have done nothing today. What's going on?
1: Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. You. Uh, you have to get up, shower, get dressed. It just, it really does. It changes your whole mindset about mm-hmm. uh, getting something done, and it's really helpful. Um, I used to always joke with students when they'd ask me about, you know, how I figured that stuff out. And uh, I used to joke that, well, getting paid is a big motivator. Yeah. <laughs> like when it came to, oh, if I don't finish this, I don't get a paycheck, and then I don't get to pay my rent, it was a big deal. But also, um, you know, having a support network helped at the time. I didn't have a huge network but I did have a few people I knew to just ask questions of and also around that time was when I actually dove really deep into listening to podcasts to kind of augment, you know, not being around people all the time I could yeah. listen to things and I could I could pick and choose podcasts that I thought would uh compliment whatever i was missing so i remember i picked up several podcasts specifically about programming and about freelancing and working from home and it was like oh perfect i can just listen to these and hear hear like 30 years of, you know shared experience and just kind of pick and choose the best bits of that uh, of that like expertise and advice I would, I would hear
0: yeah and i guess to a certain extent as well those podcasts fill that lack of people void in a certain way as well because at least, you know, you're listening to voices and it's, it's sort of like you're, <laughs> there's a conversation happening around you.
1: I think anyone who listens to a lot of podcasts knows that dynamic where it's it's different than uh, a TV show. It's different than like, some authored media contest, different listening to the news, but it's also not a replacement for actual human interaction. But then that, that little middle ground is sometimes very uh, therapeutic just to just be like, hey, I'm listening to quote-unquote people, normal people just having a conversation about something I'm interested in and I feel I feel a part of that even if I'm not, you know, participating directly in the conversation.
0: Yeah, yeah, because most of the time you listen, because you listen to people based on the social, more like the dynamic of the people that you enjoy more so than the content. Because, like, you know, it's there's a big difference between someone, two different people doing the exact same kind of content as to why you might like one person and not like the other.
1: Yeah. Oh, exactly. I think same way. Sometimes there are friends, you know, that you like and there are people that aesthetic, like basically on the surface are the same type of person, but like, you know, you like that person better because they're your friend. And it's just sometimes there's small nuances that you don't really know about. And I I feel that way where when I still do this to this day, I'll be like, you know what? I'm really into Hearthstone. I'm going to download all the Hearthstone podcasts there are, which, (laughs) and I'm just going to listen to all of them during one week and then pick or choose one that I want to keep listening to from that point on. Um, (laughs) And sometimes I can't articulate why I chose one over the other. It yeah. Sometimes it might just come down to like their personalities or their audio, yeah. you know, whatever yeah. their suite is. I'm like, oh, I really like this one. You know, this is really helpful for me.
0: Yeah. I mean, this is completely unrelated. But do you ever wonder, like, if you met yourself, whether you would actually like yourself as a friend?
1: Uh, oh yeah, I think that all the time. Um, I don't think it's no, I don't think I would like myself very much. Yeah, me neither. Um, and I, I think that I think even that statement is like a. it's a uh an impression of of how you feel about yourself as as well like you know you know you and then you know how you feel about other people you're like oh well if i'd met me i wouldn't like me (laughs) i would be the worst exactly but then uh you always talk uh, you know you find out when you talk to a third person maybe like a family member a relative that like you know the friends you are close to are act are do act like you in some ways. So it's yeah. like okay, so maybe you would actually get along with yourself. But if you knew it was you, then you would cross the line.
0: Or alternatively, your family is they going? No, you're right. You are the worst. Like, <laughs> that
1: also happens.
0: <laughs> Thanks, mom. So at what point, when you were waiting, did you just did you decide? Okay, I'm gonna start. You know, doing freelance stuff. When what was the point where it's like okay, I'm gonna give it a shot.
1: Yeah. So. A, a weird middle thing happened here where I was, uh, still waiting tables and I was still, um, doing some small projects that were like spread out over weeks and weeks. So like, I didn't have to like devote full time to it. And I, uh, met some people in the area. I lived, lived in South Florida at the time and there wasn't a whole big tech scene there. So meeting hmm. anyone who knew the industry was very rare. Um, and they ran a small agency doing websites for small businesses. Um, They didn't need any work, so I couldn't really work for them, but they wanted to kind of collaborate anyways, and we came up with this uh, kind of a small side business, and this was to do social media marketing, which is so hilarious in hindsight because today that's just ubiquitous. Every company and brand has a social media team, but in 2008, this was a really hard sell. It was really hard to tell people I needed a Twitter account. Um, and then they should upkeep it, and they, they actually should care about Facebook and everything. Yeah,
0: um, I, think I, I, got, I think I got my notification the other day that I've been on Facebook for 10 years. Or yeah. So that, means, so that means that would have been 2008 when I started on Facebook. And I felt like I got on Facebook pretty early compared to a lot of people. So that was definitely before it was much of a ubiquitous thing at all. So, yeah, I can't imagine... The idea of being like a social media marketer or something at that point in time.
1: Yeah, exactly. And then and what made it so much difficult more difficult was not only did we trying to convince people this is valuable <laughs> pay <laughs> us money every month to manage this thing for you that we just told you needed to do. And Definitely. that was tricky, especially considering especially considering that even then the pitch was this is a long term Gain, like you need to do this now for the future. So <laughs> they're like, mm, it sounds a lot like you're gonna but you're gonna do something that we can't see the results of." It definitely
0: um, sounds like a scam at that point.
1: It, it definitely does. I definitely uh, uh, empathize with all of our clients. But what ended up happening was we ended up. I think we had like a dozen clients over six months, so it wasn't bad. Um, but the common thread was. For me to be able to tweet and blog and manage all this stuff on their behalf, I needed to know a lot about what they did. So I had mm-hmm. to just absorb all of this knowledge about, you know, uh, HVAC, which is you know like air conditioning um, mm-hmm. equipment. Or or uh, one of our clients was a psychologist, so I had to read his book on psychology that he had published. And then uh, I had a photographer, and I had to know all the lingo, and um, that was a big like upfront investment. Yeah. Uh, uh, like learning about this person's industry and then almost every client would basically say they were good after two months. Like they would do a trial run, feel like it wasn't actually working out for them. They'd cancel it and then half of them would just never touch it again and the other yeah. half would just do it themselves because they saw what we were doing and they're like, oh, yeah. I can do that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, however, the, we did get one or two clients who had a bigger – bigger companies, you know, like, like multiple offices or whatever. And just having someone they could call to say, turn on this Google ad or turn this off or publish this thing on the blog was worth it to them. So they kept us around. And once I realized I had enough money coming in just from these, uh, these couple clients doing social media work, I was like, Oh, I don't need to wait tables anymore. That basically replaces that Hmm. income. So once I just stopped waiting tables, I could do the social media stuff, which was easy to be batched. I could basically like queue up three weeks of work over like a weekend um so now i had all this like free time with more or less the same schedule i had before so i started devoting all that uh quote-unquote new free time to learning and then actually getting getting work doing freelance and that was kind of my trial period of like actually going for it um and it was terrifying (laughs) to, to, to put it to put it lightly
0: did you ever attempt to tie in the the some programming side stuff with the social media stuff
1: Mm, yeah i tried it didn't work it just it was they were too divergent at the time like yeah. at least with 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 the brand and the partnership i had and i was like okay this isn't really working although it did it did help me in the i remember i had one or two contracts towards the beginning of my career that were um social media related like social media adjacent and hmm. because i had done work like you know doing social media marketing they thought it made me you know uh uh, qualified to do some of the development work that's not entirely true <laughs> i have a decade of experience to say that it didn't matter um but you know it helps it, whatever helps the clients feel better
0: yeah um, exactly you don't gotta dissuade go them of that opinion
1: yeah no 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 if they, if they if a client has thought this is this is true to this day doing client work if a client has a great idea of why you're a perfect fit let them keep that <laughs> idea <laughs> unless, it's something hor- unless it's something dangerous that they think yeah. other than that is probably fine um one of the first clients I had ever doing the contract work, and I worked on this project for almost a year, so it was a long-term project. Was a social media, like a social uh, network, for the elderly.
0: Oh god, that. <laughs> this was being built in two. Yeah,
1: in two thousand eight, <laughs> two thousand nine, maybe it was two thousand nine, two thousand ten. Yeah, I worked on a social a social network for the elderly. It was like a it was like a Facebook for those above sixty five. Um, it never really took off. I I can't really. uh, I can't can't imagine why. Yeah, I can't imagine why that didn't seem to work. But uh, that was interesting. Yeah, Uh, It it was a lot of meetings with the client that were basically him pointing at Facebook and saying he wanted that feature. (laughs) (laughs) And then me going, I guess I'll figure out how to build that.
0: (laughs) Yeah, so like how, I'm just trying to figure out how, how, what would social media for the elderly even consist of? What were they aiming for?
1: You know, I, I think now I, – I definitely know. Nowadays, I would have had more insight and more – I would have put myself more into the role of guiding the product uh, from, yeah. from that perspective. But at the time, being more of a contractor, I didn't have much insight into it. It was mostly like spilled what they already had designed. Let me see here. So it had recipes. Right. <laughs> was one of the big things. It had uh, memories, which were basically photos. It had <laughs> videos. Um, it had uh, – like a family tree style thing that you could build out. Um, and then it had you know, like tags and categories and then it had like, uh, mementos or something, <laughs> you know, like, like, a another way of like uploading content. Uh, it yeah. was, it was interesting. Like it was very much, this is what a social media network is. Let's just kind of rebrand it, you know, with some, with some new language behind it.
0: Yeah. From what I, I would understand from my understanding of the elderly and my own grandparents, there would also be a section dedicated towards, all of their friends' medical issues.
1: <laughs> yeah, that probably would be would be a practical uh, thing to add.
0: Because anytime I see my grandmother, she will tell me all about the medical issues of people I have never heard of before in my life.
1: <laughs> yep, every single person. Let me tell you about this person and then this person. And yeah, that's how that checks out.
0: You just kind of nod for two hours, and you're like, I have an entire medical history of strangers now. That's
1: great. <laughs> So many people have had knee replacements.
0: Yeah. So, yeah. Okay. So that one did work out. And then did you, was there a first particular big or memorable job where you were kind of like, oh shit, I think I can actually do this as a thing.
1: I think actually it was, was, as funny as it sounds, I think it might've actually been that social media for the (laughs) elderly just because... um, I worked on it for so long, and some of the features kept getting bigger and more complex. Um, so I had to get over the hump of like what it took to get something finished and and what it took to build something where I didn't know how to do it beforehand. Um, yeah. And that's, as I came to know afterwards, a very, very common thing in uh, the industry. like In the actual tech industry, not knowing what you're doing is kind mm-hmm. of the job. <laughs> Your job as a programmer is to be told – to build something you don't know how to build, and say you can do it, and then figure out how. Yeah. Um, so what ended up happening was uh, I had a few more clients. I had you know you know kind of coasted, but things were kind of not really going anywhere. And I just uh, saw through one of my um, lists, like one of my like groups I was involved in at the time, that uh, a company was opening a new office in, in in the town I was in in Tampa at the time, and they were hiring, and they weren't hiring people. Uh, through like traditional sending in a resume they wanted you to like complete like a code challenge like they were going to give you a quiz and you had to like cast the quiz and then that would be your like admission process and I was like okay I can try this and it was basically to build tic-tac-toe so you had to like write a tic-tac-toe game in whatever coding language you wanted Mm. and then kind of send it into them and I spent the weekend working on it and by the end of Sunday uh, it wasn't it wasn't ready. I was like, okay, I need like another week to work on this. But I remember, uh, my, my girlfriend at the time, my, my wife now was like, if you don't send this in today, you're never going to send it in. Uh, hmm. because I had worked on another challenge like this a month prior, I think Reddit actually. And I never sent it in because I just kept trying to work on it. And I just, hmm. you know, I blew past the deadline. So she made me send it in that weekend. And I was like, Oh, it's not ready. They're going to hate it. I'm never going to hear back from them. But I did hear back from them like a week later and they wanted me to come in for an interview. Um so I went in for the interview was nervous as hell. <laughs> hmm. Um basically got made myself sick afterward, I was so nervous and uh ended up uh, after a, a series like four more follow up interviews, got the job and that kind of to skip over the the entire job the process there. Um ended up kind of launching me into a career of transitioning from doing contract work to doing consulting work and actually working with other developers who had CS degrees and having like someone to actually mentor me and actually learn, fill in the gaps of what I had learned because I had no way of evaluating what my skills were before I worked on the job. But once I got there, I realized, oh, I was really good at some things for my skill level, but I was actually really bad at some other things. And I just needed to kind of you know, fill in where I had missed things on my, literally teaching myself.
0: And at that point, like doing consulting, when you sort of turned into that consulting mode, where is there a, was there a point where you kind of felt like a bit of a fraud consulting with people because you were entirely self-taught? And if you're like, <laughs> talking to people who have degrees, you're kind of like, I'm full of shit, and I hope they don't realize
1: Oh yeah, all the time, and like, I think, uh, in, imposter syndrome in particular is huge, and it's in the tech industry. It's it's rampant. Uh, and it took it took years of just kind of like, it took a long time to get over that to just kind of realize that being self taught wasn't something to kind of hide, but it was something to, uh, be upfront about and let people know what the what that means. Like if there's a difference in opinion or uh, background, but it does n- it's no less valid. And uh, a lot of that. I got over, but I didn't really internalize I got over it until actually I started teaching, and teaching people kind of helped me push through that and have to articulate my own feelings about these situations. Although I will say, one of the one of the funner situations was. Um, Working at this consultancy, one of my biggest clients that I worked on for over a year and a half uh, was actually for, for MIT, and we helped I helped build out their uh, t- their like tenure system for professors yeah. who want to you know reduce tenure um, up until we worked with them. <laughs> them getting tenure was like submitting a 200 page form but yeah, on paper so we digitized the entire thing and helped them you know automate the entire process and as you do when you have these big clients we were up in boston you know having dinner with the with their team and one of the one of the ladies on the team who works there was talking about how her grandson just graduated with his second masters from yale <laughs> after his first one was from mit and then he he asked me where i got my degree from and i was just like oh i didn't Hmm. i didn't go to college i don't have one and then she just immediately changed the subject (laughs) um i was just like okay okay we'll we'll move on from that
0: (laughs) Uh, so is there do you find those sort of different styles between people who have had, had have had like a more formal education compared to someone like you who has more been self-taught
1: oh definitely yeah it's, it's it's at the point now where i would say i'm probably more sensitive to it than other people but i can normally tell if someone has a cs degree just from looking at their code yeah <laughs> without even uh knowing the person but i can also probably tell very quickly from talking to the person if they went to college or not uh, because the way traditional you know, higher education teaches computer science is in a very – well, it's, it's very the same everywhere. So it's very predictable as far as like they value X, Y, and Z because they were taught to value those things and they will approach problems in a certain way. Um, on the average every person's unique and not uh, every college experience was the same but on the average I definitely see people that have uh, a kind of stereotypical response after coming out of a CS program and and when they get to the industry they have a certain way of approaching things um, and this is probably true in most fields I just don't know most other fields but yeah. the further you get away from from you know uh, college or university the less it matters like once you're five years into the the job everything's kind of homogenized to what the industry's at and you can't really tell as much you know where they came from or or why it even matters at that point now it's more like what have you done recently less where you came from
0: yeah it's like you know creating a resume when you've been in the workforce for a while like when you first get out of college or university you're like oh here's my here's my history here's my marks I got in university here's my like like my transcripts so you know in details and then You know, five years later you're like, Oh yeah, I guess I went there, but here's the actual work I've done.
1: (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, and that was the the long game that I think I was always playing and I I think I'm I've gotten to the other side of it (laughs) now with ten years of experience where yeah, me me producing a resume, no one asks anymore, you know, where's the college degree at the very end. Um, but there are some companies that still would for HR reasons, so I just don't ever uh, plan to work for them is yeah. kind of my way around that.
0: <laughs> I mean, uh, I mean, not, starting your own business is definitely one way to just avoid that entirely.
1: Yeah, that's what I've always <laughs> tell people. It's like, you know, I could go this route and have to explain to people why I don't have a degree, or I could start my own business and not have to ever explain it. But also, um, like,
0: I can't, outside of those kind of few exceptions in HR and stuff, I can't imagine it's that much of an issue these days. There's probably a whole world of self-taught people out there now
1: yeah it's really interesting so with the way that the industry has gone especially with again with code schools the last like five years um the amount of people who don't have cs degrees has just skyrocketed um although i will say what i've noticed is because of code schools it's almost impossible to get a job um without having either a code school or a cs degree just because um Like what the the level of skill that I had, you know, back in 2010, 2011, after being self-taught and doing the professionally on the side for a little while is still very – it's like – barely what you get after like eight months of six months of doing a code school. Like they are very efficient these days. At least the good ones are at getting people to, a, to the like proper industry level very quickly. Cause they teach them all the things they need to know really fast. So um, that's a very common thing is to see people with one of these two things now. Uh, yeah. So it, it, it matters less and less as time goes on. Eventually I don't think, you know, unless there's a big reshuffling, people will seem to care as much. They really want to see what you've done and, and how you can produce work.
0: Yeah. Like, but I guess it matters less than this, but at the same time, because there's probably, I mean, not probably, there is definitely a whole lot more people out there doing programming that sort of thing than there would have been when you first started getting into it, just by the nature of the industry expanding. Do they kind of use those things as well, sort of still just to narrow down, like when businesses are trying to choose people?
1: Oh, yeah. Oh, definitely. I mean, it's the, the market is definitely it's it's so confusing at some, sometimes sometimes because it' it's, it's so booming and it's like there's a big we hear this all the time there's a big uh uh what's the word looking for there's a big uh shortage of, of programmers for all the jobs there are um but that statement is true in the aggregate it's not true of the specifics yeah. so like a particular position with a particular skill set at a certain level, no, it's oversaturated. Yeah. But just if you take all programmer jobs, then yeah, there's a huge gap. So it's really tough because we kind of have a glut right now on the junior level where yeah. we have a ton of juniors. There's just so many of them. Um, but we're, the industry just kind of waiting for them to get to the good enough skill level to be filling all those senior jobs that are desperately needed. Yeah. Um, and, it, and it sucks because uh, one of the reasons I, you know, quit teaching at a code school was because I taught seven courses, you know, over a hundred students that had graduated and now we're getting jobs that the industry still had so many problems. I mean, I was never under the illusion the industry didn't have problems, but now having, you know, the touchstone of all of these students talking to me about like the, you like ubiquity of problems that they're having all <laughs> across the board. I'm like, you're all having the same problems. Um, I found very frustrating and it felt like, You know, part of the quote-unquote problem I was excited to be helping solve when I first joined working at a code school in 2014, back in January, February of 2014, um, was being solved everywhere all the time. Like I didn't think I was actually adding anymore. Like there's people getting into the industry. I'm not helping with that. But what is happening is people are getting into the industry and they're bouncing out or people are getting into the industry uh, and then they're like, oh, this kind of sucks. Like (laughs) these people don't really know what they're doing and – I found, or I felt, it may, my, might have been my own my own perception of things that as a code school instructor, as someone uh, I was kind of part of this industry, so I always spoke for the education inside of things. And even though I was very passionate about that, it made it hard for me to then talk to other companies about how they should do things because it just seemed like I was someone shilling wares of students. I'm <laughs> like, oh, you should do things this way because here's students for you. I was like, no, 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 yeah. I want to tell you my industry, my experience as a consultant, like these are ways you can improve your own company in the industry as a whole. So, um, starting my own company gave me the leeway to say, great, now that I'm doing that, let me do, let me speak to you as a company owner who also adopts these practices. This is how you should take, you should handle onboarding. You should handle training. You should handle, you know, um, working with new people and, and hiring junior developers because, um, (laughs) the industry in general tends to be really bad the tech industry that is um at believing or not believing at actually uh training people like it's it's much easier for them it seems to be to just put out a job listing for someone with 10 years experience um without ever building anyone that has 10 years experience yeah Uh, and that's why there's a shortage because the shortage exists because we're not training people for those skills so i've been trying to you know Uh, instill into companies, hey, something you can do is you can take your existing developers and make them that perfect developer you want in less time than 10 years. 10 years is a great catch-all for, well, I don't know what they're going to have done for 10 years, but that's long Mm -hmm. enough to learn everything we want. Um, But you could definitely get someone to that skill level you're looking for in like three probably um, if you have have the proper process and procedures in place.
0: Yeah, I mean that's the kind of thing that applies – For a lot of businesses, because, you know, as long as you have someone who at a base level understands what you want and need and do, that's like a much more efficient way of going. Even if you bring in some new person, they still have to spend a bunch of time getting an understanding of your business, whereas someone who's worked there for however long already has that understanding. So it just saves you a lot of time right there.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. These are these are not like new concepts, but it seems to be they just get so haphazardly applied across the industry. And hmm. part of it, I think, is people uh, approach tech differently. There's a weird divide in most businesses, like oh, these are the programmers and these are the business rest of the company people, hmm. um, which is artificial. It doesn't need to be there, but because it's there, uh, it does like I guess perpetuate some of these like oh, we don't know how to hire these people, so we're just gonna do something hand wavy trying to figure out ways of of fixing that
0: yeah because i think even in non programming specific businesses even though tech is a huge part of most businesses now i think we still haven't got quite to that point where a lot of the higher up management positions they're still a bit like still a bit too much from the previous generation so they haven't Mm -hmm. like and a lot of times they haven't fully grasped the technical side of things. So yeah, then they're like, I don't know, just bring someone in who knows how to do it. I don't understand.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, that's definitely true. Um, and that's something uh, I was reminded of very quickly when I got back into consulting uh, and being back in the driver's seat as far as like selling to clients and dealing with the, like, what their products and their ideas are. I was like, you know, it's, it's a shame in my mind. Shifting gears from the education side of things to just the consulting side of things, it's a shame in my mind that people have worked, business leaders, you know, higher ups have worked with tech in the past. Like they've they've either built software projects or they've worked with it, but they still have no clue how it works, mm. you know. And and to a certain extent, there's I can't fix, you know, you can't make a horse drink if it doesn't want to. You can't yeah. uh, fix someone who doesn't care enough to learn. But we can do better as developers or the tech minded people in the industry at like teaching them how yeah. um so one thing i try a lot with my clients is to just every step along the way without being uh, pedantic or uh or what's the word i'm looking for or patronizing try to explain all the different processes we're going through so that they feel more informed in the future when it comes to like making decisions about like building software or buying software or understanding why something is the way it is because i i talk to developers a lot and i hear I hear uh, them complaining about their clients or their boss, and there's always a legitimate core to it. But on top of it, I always I always hear is like, I didn't tell them how this thing works, and now they're mad at me for yeah. it being late. And I it's was like, well, you like, should have yeah. told them.
0: <laughs> yeah, like there's, there's a balance. Like, okay, obviously that person needs to, you know, the person who doesn't have a tech understanding needs, needs to have a vague understanding of what they want. But mm-hmm. also... the the more programming tech side of people need to realize that not everyone is a tech person. So not everyone is going to understand that in the same way that, that you understand it.
1: Yeah, exactly. And, and that so many issues can be resolved just through like communicating, just through talking, like just literally communicating is like a huge thing. I've had horrible clients over the years and, I've had clients so horrible we had to fire them. But I've also had clients that were horrible until we we managed them properly, and managing them normally just meant – giving them plenty of time, like being over-communicative. Like it can be a pain as a programmer. You know, the the stereotype programmers being antisocial is a stereotype, but it generally is true. Like most programmers aren't very outgoing. They just kind of want to get their work done and be left alone. But Mm. sometimes you need to be more communicative. Like, okay, this is what we're doing. This is why we're doing it. This is why it's taking longer. And then once everyone's kind of like understands why something might be late, it doesn't Mm. tend to be quite as a, as a, you know, all hands on deck! Something's on fire. If yeah. they can kind of plan accordingly.
0: Yeah, it's rare that too much information is going to be a bad thing.
1: Right. Exactly. If you're talking too much, and then normally, uh, and I've, I've been in actually been in teams where we've decided to talk less, and normally that just means everyone agrees. We feel like we're wasting time talking so much, and that yeah. everyone knows at the same time. Everyone realizes, oh, you know what? We said the same thing. Everyone's yeah. on the same page. Let's go. Let's cut down to a meeting every other day instead (laughs) instead of once a day
0: okay so what at what point did you make the transition from getting into the teaching point yeah you went from just your doing your stuff having whatever work and you went okay i can teach now what what made that step happen
1: yeah Yeah, that's that's such a good point so um so the consultancy that i was working for um after doing contract work um They paired me with a mentor as soon as I got hired, and they explained that the way they do things, like the reason why they had a a code challenge to get in was they believed that mentorship was the best way to grow and the best way to kind of like um, progress in the industry. So they treated software like a crafts industry. Akin to like blacksmithing or something, and they yeah, like yeah. wanted to pair you up that way. Um, so I thought that was really great. It was really helpful for me in my career. Uh, and then once I had kind of gone through that like apprenticeship style process, it was my job to then be a mentor, so then I was assigned an apprentice and I had to teach them. And it was through that process of teaching uh, a person that was new to the company that I started to kind of really realize I really enjoyed that. Um, I really liked teaching them. I really liked you know taking the time to help them. Um, so I kind of just as much as I could, I would expand my role to talk to other mentors to see how they could help their apprentices. I would talk about like, okay, this is how we're doing things overall. How can we improve that? How can we streamline this process to make it easier for all these apprentices going through? Because I I, I empathize with like the amount of stress they're under, you know, being freshly hired, but also being in this like pressure cooker of UK you need to learn really quickly because you need to get you to the skill level where you're where you're actually productive um, and I did that for a while I really really enjoyed it so when uh, I got contacted through a friend like hey this place you know this uh, code school is opening up and they are curious and ha- if you would be interested in teaching full-time I was like I kind of felt like at the time I couldn't pass up the opportunity to at least talk to them about mm-hmm. like what would it look like to teach full-time instead of developing full-time instead of kind of just teaching when I could steal a few moment, moments away from, from developing um, and to make a long story short, like I made that jump and it was immediately like thrown into the deep end as far as like, okay, you're writing this curriculum, you're teaching on Monday. It's a three hour lecture starting at 9. AM. There's no notes. There's no slides go. Hmm. Um, and <laughs> it was terrifying. And, um, but I did good. So, uh, I think. (laughs) I don't think my first week was good. I'd be fair. I think my first week was really bad. Um, But my students were infinitely patient with me, and I think I improved uh, over the next couple weeks and became uh, quite adept at it and realized, oh, I can talk for three hours. That's not hard. Um, And that's when I kind of realized, okay, this is something I think I should, just like I did with programming, teach myself to get better at. So I started reading books on like pedagogical process and started reading books on like what it means to mentor and what it means to teach someone how to teach adults. Um, how, what does the, what does the experience of education mean? Like I read, um, teaching to transgress by bell hooks, um, which is a book all about uh, education as freedom. It's a, it's a very, uh, socially minded book. And these kind of like expanded my, my entire worldview as far as like what teaching could mean, what learning could mean. Um, and I tried to pour as much of that as I could back into the courses that I was teaching. Um, and that would change the, the way the lecture would go. And that would change the way the assignments would be assigned. Um, and I got really good feedback from my students. So I kind of had this, like, this feedback loop of like, okay, things are working, things are working. And then I could you know, improve the next, the next cohort, the next semester as things went on.
0: Yeah, because I guess you seem to come at it from a good attitude point of like, just because you are the teacher doesn't mean you're done learning kind of thing.
1: Yeah, exactly. And that was something I really wanted to impart with the students because, you know, I taught myself into this industry and they are kind of teaching themselves into this industry as well, even though they're at a code school. Really, most code schools, the way they work, you're being self taught, you're just being guided very heavily. You know, I used to tell students my first day that my job is to remove the boulders from your path. Like, you are yeah. going to keep going down this road, and I'm going to point, and if you get stuck, I mean, it's not your fault, I will move that out of the way. Um, and a, a perfect example I used to always tell them was, like, I remember teaching myself uh, Ruby on Rails, and at one point, I couldn't get some code that I read to run. It just wouldn't run. And I didn't understand why. It took me a week, like literally seven days of checking my computer, reading stuff, reading stuff, checking things, reading stuff, to finally find out it wasn't my fault at all. It was something bugged in some part of the computer. And I just had to like run some weird command and restart and then everything would work. (laughs) So (laughs) that was a learning process for sure. But it was a waste of time in the grand scheme of things. So my job as an instructor for the students was to say, this is something that you need to learn from and build over, or this is something I just need to remove from you so you can keep you can focus on what's important. Yeah. Um, so a lot of a lot of the weight for me as an instructor was trying to differentiate between what is actually an important learning task and what is something um, they don't need to bother struggling with.
0: Yeah, yeah, I guess, and I guess a lot of programming, I mean, it, it would apply to a lot of things, but a lot of programming has to come from learning through failing, or like learning through fucking things up, and then you make that mistake, <laughs> and you go, okay, now I know not to do that again.
1: Yes, exactly, yeah, you know, it's exactly how it is, and that's really important for anyone who is a student trying to learn this, because uh, we would get a decent amount of students who, you know, for whatever one reason or another, were like, I want this to be my career, but they didn't know it but i have never done it before so mm-hmm. it was very important very early to be like hey if you don't like this process because not everyone in the world does if you don't like this yeah. process of like everything's failed and wrong all the time um you need to know now because this is what it is forever i remember i had a student once asked me like a couple weeks into the class like so when do we learn how to stop having errors <laughs> um I i'll said, let you I'll, just, like, I'll let you know when <laughs> i get there i was like i don't know what you mean and he's like, he's like no i just i don't want to have errors anymore i want to just learn how to do it correctly the first time and i was like well i don't know anyone who yeah. can do that like it's just humans make errors but also <laughs> building a program is this iterative approach of like getting things wrong and kind of feeling your way from there like okay that was wrong but this is right that's wrong this is right
0: yeah like because in general no matter what job you have you're always going to make mistakes because yeah humans do it but Programming specifically seems like it's the kind of thing where you make something, something doesn't work because you made a mistake. So then you figure out why it doesn't work.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, it's just the the, the art, the science of writing software is that mistakes happen, and so much of uh, the industry is about how do we minimize those mistakes. I mean, and, and this is something that uh, I could talk another three hours about. Is just like uh, the things we do in the industry to like to fix that. Um, I've given lectures at at conferences that are how do we improve like our own code? How do we write our code in such a way that we're minimizing the amount of errors that we're having and we make fixing those errors uh, as quick and as efficient as possible because we'll never get to the holy grail of error-free software. What we can do is we can, you know, change the way we approach problems that such that we minimize the amount of like effect those actual problems can have.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I would I would imagine that if you're a person who's coding or programming and you're at the point where everything you are doing, you're you are doing your work without thinking you've made a single mistake every time, then all that means is that you've missed some mistakes that you've made.
1: <laughs> exactly. That tends to be a pretty safe assumption. And also like if you don't ever think your work can get better, you need to have a more critical eye about what you're doing because yeah. You know, there there are more times now, a decade into my career, that I'm happy with what I wrote. I'm like, oh, this is good, but it's never everything I write. It's always "Mm, this could be better, but because of these constraints, including time, always being one of (laughs) them, I can't make it perfect. You know, um, part of programming is also predicting the future. You you never know what what's going to happen next, so you have to just kind of make do with what you have.
0: Because yeah, I kind of feel like it's the industry. It's an industry where it's just constantly building like a year each year. I'm sure there's been a lot of dramatic changes to a certain extent within the industry.
1: Oh yeah. And that varies wildly depending on, um, what part of the industry you're in. So for me, um, and I kind of, we only briefly touched on this, but like, so my bread and butter in the industry is web consulting. So I do mostly web application development. So that's, you know, HTML CSS and JavaScript. Um, and then whatever server side language does is being used. Um, And that's a completely different world than, like, people who do iOS and Android development, uh, which is also completely different than people who do, like, embedded stuff uh, with hardware and Internet of Things and drones or people that do machine learning and all this kind of stuff. And those all change at different paces. Mm. Um, So switching from one of those verticals to the other also requires, like, adapting to the way this part of the industry just approaches things.
0: And is it the kind of thing where, you know, on the client side, they still don't really understand that. So like you could do web, you do web development stuff. Are there people who come to you and be like, I want you to make me an app.
1: <laughs> yeah. That's the most common one is, uh, people who, because of the world we live in today, everything's just an app, yeah. um, which is, it's better than it used to be where everyone just assumed everything was an, a web page. <laughs> <laughs> no matter what you told them you worked on, they're like, so you make websites, <laughs> you know, and it's like, no, don't make websites. This is, different uh but yeah that's still that still happens um what's always funny to me is when a certain tech thing whatever it might be crosses over some threshold some unknown threshold into like business world and all of a sudden business people know this term and they start asking for it in particular um and I mean, it, it becomes popular for a reason, and that's why it's have to used. So for me, that was Ruby on Rails. So Ruby on Rails is a, a framework for building server-side applications, um, but that was the framework that was used to build like early Twitter and to build uh, Groupon and to build uh, a bunch of small startups back in the like 2006, no, wait, yeah, 2006, 7, 8, whatever, um, and it crossed over to where people like people with no technical like actual expertise were saying, I need a rails app. (laughs) 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 Um, it didn't really matter in the grand scheme of things, but they knew what they wanted because they've seen this, you know, other people using it. Um, and that definitely progressed to like iOS apps. People like I want an iOS app. I will say they know what they're talking about when they say that, because there's no like substitute for an iOS app. It's either it is or it isn't. Um, yeah. And then more recently today, we get that with uh, React. React is this you know web framework built by Facebook that's everywhere. I mean, it's literally all over the internet. Um, so people will literally look for companies to just make them a quote unquote React app, even though that's not really what they want. They want whatever their product is, but they just know that's the word they want to use when they ask for it.
0: Right. Yeah. They just, they just read it on of somewhere and like, okay, that's what I need to say. And I suppose a lot of that also ties in there. Like, I know... I know the popular, most of the popular successful things use this, so therefore I need to use this to be popular and successful.
1: Yeah, that's a very, that's a very common thing with clients. Is, and I don't blame them. Again, like I, have, I, have like, I try to have as much empathy as possible for where my clients are coming from because it's so easy for consultants and software developers in general to be looked at like mechanics hmm. because uh, the power imbalance between the average client and the developer is so skewed. You know, the developer is explaining to them what you need and why you need it and why this needs to be replaced, and the business person is just like, "Oh, oh, okay. I need new tires. Okay, sh- sure." <laughs> so they try to come, they try to combat that with anything they can find, any any grasp. And it was like, "Oh, I read this Forbes article that's, that said React is really good." Mm. So I'm going to come to this meeting and say, "We need React."
0: <laughs> is there? Is there, is there like a particular touchstone at the moment, less on the behind the scenes like the react side of things, but more like like how ages ago that guy was like I want to make a Facebook for the elderly more or less. Is there <laughs> is there a more current version of that, that cultural touchstone where people are maybe like I want to make a Tinder for pets.
1: Um, well I mean that's actually pretty accurate. So these days um, the two quote unquote the big hotnesses are like Tinder and Uber. So everyone wants to do Uber for X or Tinder for X. <laughs> um, I haven't worked on any and those recently, I've kind of moved. I try to. I tried to intentionally move away from wild startup ideas to yeah. more like I have an actual sustainable business, so I can pay you. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I get less of those than I used to. Um, I what used is, to work more st- like firmly in the startup circles, um, but I still hear about them all the time. Uh, was was <laughs> there, there still, anything? Stuff still out there.
0: Was there anything particularly noteworthy in its ridiculousness of like a startup idea that got brought to you?
1: Oh yeah, so many of them. Um, I remember. Uh, Foursquare for snacks, which was funny because Foursquare kind of already was that. Uh, Let me see here. There was definitely one where I had to turn the client down, first of all because it was a bad idea, but second of all because it was illegal, and he didn't quite understand that it was illegal. Um, And basically the app was blackmail. Like literally the (laughs) app was blackmailing people, and I had to explain this to him on a call, and he did not agree that it was blackmail. And basically the pitch was – you and your, and your buddies are hanging out, and your buddy you know, pees on the street. You can take a picture of it and upload it to this site and then put a price on it, and then he can pay to have it taken down. Otherwise, you'll show, share it everywhere. <laughs> wow, and yeah, I'm like, that that's, is... that's, that's blackmail. And he's that's... like, no, no, it's great. We'll make so much money off of it. It's just
0: a straight up extortion. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's exactly like extortion in the website. I can't remember what the name was, it had a ridiculous name. And <laughs> was I was actually, just like,
0: there's. It was actually called blackmail. And he's like, no, I don't problem. get it.
1: it. It was, yeah, I just I just had to tell him there's no world in which I work on this app. I'm sorry, you're going to have to find someone else. Uh, like, you know, I have to have my ethics in place somewhere.
0: More, that more seems like the pitch for a Black Mirror episode more than anything. Doesn't it? <laughs> because, you know, then then people progressively keep encouraging their friends to do worse and worse things.
1: Uh huh. Just so they can extort them later. Exactly.
0: Yeah. So then, so then, eventually, it's just like prodding your friends into murdering somebody so you can film it and blackmail them.
1: And just yeah, and just see how much money they have to take from them later. Yeah, it was yeah. it's quite a disaster. Okay. I, I I have been lucky in my career to not be faced with too many ethical dilemmas, um, like where I've had to be like question whether or not it's actually worth implementing something. It was like <laughs> that one, and then uh, on the social media uh, social networking site for the elderly. They wanted to implement like password storage. Hmm. We would just store their passwords for every site they had. (laughs) uh on the site like no no no. that is like the ultimate honeypot for hackers if we're just storing every web every other passwords for every website they're going to come for us so we had to have a big drawn out discussion about why that's not happening
0: like because you you understand where they would come from like elderly Mm -hmm. they are probably going to forget their passwords all the time so you logically understand why someone would come up with that idea but yeah it's like that is a terrible idea
1: Right, exactly. And I think in general, our industry suffers from lack of foresight when it comes to some of those decisions. Like, you know, people decide, like most of the quote unquote scandals you see uh, on a daily, weekly basis in the tech industry are, you know, a company implemented some feature without, without ever putting some thought into consideration of what does this mean when yeah. it's actually out in the world, you know.
0: It's like, you know, the best, a lot of it uh, would probably best intentions while ignoring the fact that there is a lot of terrible people out there who would do terrible things.
1: Right, exactly. Or just not having, uh, like, the diversity of opinion and background on a team to know this is potentially offensive or potentially just wrong. I, yeah. uh, like, one of the biggest offenders recently was, uh, like, uh, now all these companies are coming out with, like, facial recognition software, um, and... It happened with HP a few years ago where it just did not work with people who weren't white. And that's really bad. Like, it's just unacceptably bad. But what that tells you immediately is no one on that team was not white, basically. Like, no one on that team had any insight into, oh, this code might not work. Like, we needed to test it on a wider group of people. Um, And luckily, that's becoming, that's starting to become more addressed and like starting to actually be called out as like something needs to get fixed.
0: Yeah, I don't I don't know if you ever watched this the show Better Off Ted that existed like several years ago, but there was an episode of that show where basically they invent they brought in, you know, facial recognition around their company to like <clears> get people around and like it would just unlock doors and stuff like that, and it was the same like the same storyline was that it didn't recognize anyone who was black, so all of their black employees got allocated a white employee to follow them around so they could get through <laughs> doors in oh the company. <laughs> yeah, so yeah. Yeah, I, I imagine. Saw that, that one. Yeah, I imagine it's probably based off the same kind of thing.
1: I okay. think it probably is, yeah. That was, so, big, that was a big deal in that.
0: Okay, so when did you decide that, okay, you're done, you're done your run at the teaching side of things at this school was kind of done and you wanted to venture into doing your own thing?
1: Yeah, it was, uh, again, like a little over two, almost three years ago now, probably a little over three years ago, I started thinking about it. I had been planning it for like eight months where I was like, you know, this is something I want to do. I want to uh, be able to create a company and do consulting again because I do miss it. I missed working with clients, but also I want to be—I ha- want to give myself, build myself a platform where I can kind of like address some of these issues. Not being a Code School instructor, but being um, someone who builds it, has worked on this as a consultant. Uh, give myself more ability to actually help some of these companies um, and not be not have to be like, oh, I have to go back to school. <laughs> I've got to teach this <laughs> class tomorrow morning. I can't actually help you, and. I spent a long time planning over what that would look like and what I should do, um, and it t- probably took longer to leave than I had originally intended just because uh, the way the code school cycle worked at the company I worked at was you know, you'd know, you have graduation. Everyone would say their T or goodbye, and then three weeks later would be the next class. Um, so I would always meet the new students, and I'd be like, well, I can't quit now. I've got these students. <laughs> and they depending on me so i can't leave them hanging so i would just keep staying for the next class the next class Um, but eventually we got to a point where uh just to to shifts in the industry uh my next class didn't exist Um, i was still gonna have a job but i was gonna have to teach a different class and um i was like well this is perfect i'll just i'll just this is my exit (laughs) i'm gonna leave right now um while this is happening and um that was like okay i'm gonna you know, go back to consulting and go back to trying to do some teaching and mentoring, and kind of just, in again hindsight, did another risky decision, which was I just I didn't have a client. <laughs> I just left. I was just like, I'll figure it out. Um, and uh, luckily, I did. I was able to get a client within the next month or so. Um, I worked with like over a year, um, which was doing um, both consulting work and training work. So it was a great first client to kind of broadcast. Uh, to other people like what i'm trying to do with this company which is build quality software but also teach people at the same time
0: yeah yeah so like how how big would your company be at this point like do you you have (laughs) a bunch of employees do you have is it just you
1: yeah so we're a thousand people no no so um right (laughs) Uh, now uh, you may have heard
0: of us we're called google
1: (laughs) (laughs) If only. No, so um, there are three of us right now, and uh, I hired two people full time this year, which has been really exciting. Um, and we're probably going to be hiring again in a couple of months, which is again super wild. Um, this is the first time—not that I've run a team, but that I've had quote unquote employees. Like you know, I've never uh, owned a company that had employees before. So yeah. this is a, a a new, a brand new learning experience for me, which is not just teaching and not just developing, but also you know, being a boss. Um, So I actually am part of a, like a book club that uh, does a lot of management reading. So I read a ton of books on like how to manage and how to run companies, which has been really fun. Um, Yeah. So we're about, uh, we're three people full-time. I have one or two uh, people, contractors who work part-time and we have about nine clients. So we're doing simultaneously some part-time and then some full-time and it's been, it's been smooth sailing kind Mm. of. (laughs)
0: <laughs> so was it was it a bit terrifying at first and let's say in that month period between you you know quitting and then looking for clients was there a point where you were kind of like i have made a big mistake
1: oh yeah 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 um, basically every other day <laughs> that <laughs> happened and a part of it was uh to call back to the beginning of this discussion was i was now working from home again and i hadn't mm-hmm. worked from home in like six years um and I was just like, "Oh, I have lost all of my ability to work from home. <laughs> I just, I just am not able to deal with this." Um, and the other thing was dealing with the like uh, whiplash effect of going from a a position in a job where I was busy all the time. Like when I was teaching full time, um, I also was a mentor to other instructors. So. I was busy from like eight fifteen when I would arrive to class to six fifteen, six forty five when I left, either talking to a student or talking to another teacher or talking talking to you know a future student about something technical, um, and then all of a sudden I'm like, oh, I've got my entire day to do anything (laughs) (laughs) and uh my brain just ate itself it was just like (laughs) uh it was it was rough and and it made it made me realize that hiring had to be a priority for me um like getting to that sustainability because i needed the company to not be completely reliant on my emotional well-being yeah that makes any sense like it, it was like Monday morning, oh, the company's great. Things are amazing. I love this decision. Tuesday, nothing has changed, but I'm really sad that day. And it's like, oh, yeah. this was a horrible decision. I need to look for a job now. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> but now with, with two employees, like, I can take a day off. <laughs> yeah. And I don't feel like, oh, that's it. Close the shop. You know, I'm not there today.
0: <laughs> uh, yeah. Also, yeah. It, just, it needs to become it's self-sustainable to, without you to a certain extent.
1: Yeah, exactly, and it's not right where I would like it to be yet. It'll probably get there over the next year, but um, it's much better now than it used to be.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh. So, um, see, so yeah, uh, what, what? So, what? Where? Like, where do you want to take it from here? I guess. Like, where? Where are you aiming to? What's the What's the ideal point you would like to get your your company to? I guess.
1: Yeah. So I I, I spent a decent amount of time thinking about this and. I've, I've talked to friends of mine who have grown consultancies and, and grown companies, and I, I personally I'm not interested in running a, a giant company. It's not mm-hmm. really something I'm into. So I'm thinking for me, you know, if, if an ideal scenario is in with the next couple of years, the team is you know 10 to 20. That feels like a size I'm very comfortable with. That's mm-hmm. a very sustainable size as far as like the company can run on its own, and p- individual people can go off to pursue different careers or different positions and it doesn't really hurt the internal process. Um, and I want us as a company to be a company like I'm very focused on the culture of the company. I really want it to reflect our like values of like, you know, the importance of diversity, the importance of like actually educating people, the importance of, of like improving our own process and the process of others. And like, if I could imagine it, you know, you know, two, three years from now, it would be, we have this, we have a nice big office where we teach classes and we teach, um, people to come in and we train them on, you know, with their client projects and we build, you know, pieces of software collaboratively as a team, um, that we give to other people that, you know, both the clients are happy and we're all enjoying our job day in day out.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, so do you feel like you're getting there? You're in a good place on the way down that road?
1: Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, the hardest thing is sales. Like, like, like actually getting clients is always tricky. Um, but honestly, as far as like where the company is now and where it's in, like, I'm, I'm comfortably confident that we're in the right path. I Can't see the future, but like, if things keep going the path they're going at, you know, in two three years that could happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think. Even if it never makes it there, I'm okay with that. Like, this is just, this is a, in, in the end, with everything in my career and most people's lives, it's an experiment. Like, it's just a, yeah. it's a trial to see if this, if this actually works out. And I'm excited to be along for the ride as long as it lasts.
0: Yeah. Is it the kind of thing where, like, even if it plateaued right now where it is, you'd still be content just doing that?
1: Yeah, I think so. I mean, if it plateaued where it was, I think myself and my employees that I hired, we would be good. I mean, eventually they might get bored and want to work somewhere else, but um, yeah. I'm trying to keep projects varied. I try to take a lot of their input as to, like, what they want to do in the future so, like, I can push us towards that kind of a thing. Yeah, I don't think growth has to occur, um, but uh, I would like it to.
0: <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, it that, that does <laughs> definitely seem like it would be a bonus if that happened.
1: Yeah, exactly. It's nice to have a few extra people around the office. Yeah.
0: And do you, do you still do any kind of hobby programming these days or is it mostly all work-based and then you want (laughs) nothing to do with it when you get some time to yourself?
1: It's, it's, well, it's funny. I thought about that because when I opened uh, my computer today for a certain uh, Skype call, it was the first time I'd opened it since Friday. So that partly answers the question. Mostly I do have other like hobby programming. I really still enjoy game programming as a hobby. Mm -hmm. Um, but I do find I have way less time to do it, um, and that is one of my personal goals. Uh, it's it's also a company goal, but one of my personal goals for the next year is to um, carve out for myself more time for self care and more time to let my brain rest and like do something for a hobby instead of you know my entire you know mental space being taken up by whatever the company you know has to do next.
0: Yeah, because I figured like yeah, that is one of the the downsides of starting your own company is that it kind of consumes you.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it definitely does. Um, And I've gone through points where I'm able to pull back a little bit and it's nice and refreshing. And then I'm at at a point right now where I'm full in it and I have not pulled back recently. Um, And hopefully that'll that'll shift because I've been working on a client project and once that's launched, I can pull back a little bit.
0: Yeah. so like overall, if if you had to, I guess, to wrap things up, like what... If you had to sort of summarize what you find most rewarding and like what, what do you get out of like this whole programming and teaching? What do you find like the most rewarding aspects of it all?
1: Yeah, I think what I find the most rewarding out of the whole thing, the whole industry, the whole thing I've been doing is uh, I love when someone else has that spark when they've learned something new. Right. Like when they I, – I, I really find it enjoyable when I have accomplished something and I learned something. But as far as like my personal fulfillment, when someone else is struggling with something and I can help them achieve whatever that goal is, that is when to me I go, it was all worth it. That's when that that thought process uh, comes across my head. And I get a little bit of that with working with clients when they get to see the final product and they're just you know super over the moon about it. Um, but I, I – I cherish the moments I get that with my employees when we're working together on a hard problem and when I'm teaching someone, um, and they reach that next milestone. And that's what really gets me excited to do that again and again.
0: Yeah. So I guess you're, you know, you want, they're, they're getting the spark and you just kind of want to help stoke the flame out of that once they have that.
1: Mm-hmm. Exactly.
0: Oh, excellent. Well, sounds good. And yeah, it sounds like you've done some impressive work for based from based on someone who knew nothing outside of a person sitting in Starbucks and sitting in a bookstore you've managed to do pretty well for yourself
1: yeah i can't complain
0: yeah cuz my my sole experience with programming was i did a programming course in high school very briefly and i was one of those people that did it and realized very quickly that i fucking hated it <laughs>
1: yeah it's definitely not for everyone
0: i had dreams of like i'm gonna do like video game programming or something and then i did it for a bit like wait i just like playing video games never mind
1: yeah playing them sometimes a lot more fun I, i have those moments as well sometimes on the weekends i'm like you know what i'd rather just play a game
0: yeah so yeah i i quickly those those dreams of programming of mine died very quickly well thank you very much for joining me i think that's a good good place to leave it
1: thanks for having me this was a great chat
0: yeah. Yeah. It was very good. And yeah, I think that's pretty much it. Thank you very much for joining me. Um, anyone out there, anyone in Austin or maybe not in Austin who wants to, to contact you? What was your business name again?
1: Uh, my business name is Lunar Collective. If you want to contact me, you could just send me an email um, at justin at lunarcollective.co. Um, it doesn't have to be about client work. You can just email me about you know coding questions. I'm always happy to answer those yeah. too.
0: Coding questions, questions about Hearthstone. You never know. Anything
1: yeah any of it
0: <laughs> oh yeah well thank you very much and until next time everybody else please keep on caring